Last week, um, we started, we finished, wrapped up David's first epic by talking about beauty. Um, we talked about how for about the first 1,500 years of the church, uh, the church tended to see beauty as equally as important as truth and goodness. They were called the transcendentals. They were these three things that the church uh, really focused on. And then uh, since the Reformation, really the last 500 years, we've focused really hard on uh, truth and goodness, what we call orthodoxy, believing the right thing, and orthopraxy, doing the right thing. And we've kind of lost track of beauty, just beauty for beauty's sake, and, and the way that beauty affects our relationship with God and draws us deeper into Him. So we spent last week in a discussion kind of chewing that up a little bit, We've kind of gotten drawn as a church into how effective something is, how efficient something is, how well it works, how, and uh, rarely do we hang on to things just for the sake of the beautiful. But we need to say goodbye to beauty because we're diving in tonight to uh, David's second epic, which is uh, this new part of his life. So if this were a romantic comedy, you know, the couple has met, they've had their explosive falling in love, and they're reaching that point when you know the whole thing's about to fall apart because that has to happen in every romantic comedy, you know. So that's kind of what's going on in David's life. Um, our Jewish shepherd has worked under the Middle Eastern skies and composed some beautiful nature poetry. We talked about that. Um, he's received this kind of bizarre, out-of-nowhere anointing from the man of God concerning his future. He's built a reputation as a musician and as a tough guy that's landed him a job working directly for the king. And he's valiantly stepped up to defend the name of the Lord and the armies of Israel um, against the giant. And suddenly he finds himself famous, popular, and this lands him center in the kind of jealous glare of uh, King Saul. The Bible tells us that David was prospering in Saul's house. He had become Jonathan, the king's son's BFF, and they got so close that Saul actually sent back to Jesse, Jason, uh, David's dad, and said, David's just going to live with us from now on. So their friendship had gone deep. Everything was perfect. Until this coming home one day from a successful day of slaughtering the Philistines, it says. Um, they had a successful day of battle. They were coming home. The army was victorious. The soldiers, the king, and all the people were happy. They were celebrating. And, uh, and the women start to sing. And they sing this little refrain, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And if this were a movie, you can see the camera like zoom in on Saul's face and his smile starts to get kind of fake and forced as he starts to contemplate um, what this means. Saul was the very first king of Israel. So he has no dynasty to fall back on. He doesn't have a birthright really. In, in honesty, Israel's super close to a democracy at this time. When Samuel presented Saul, he kind of said, what do you think of this guy? And they all kind of said, yes, make him our king. They kind of voted for him. And so it was almost a popularity contest. And if, if the public opinion is swinging a new direction, Paul has, I mean, Saul has nothing to fall back on. He has nothing, he has no way of, uh, of claiming his throne, um, you know, the way we would typically think of claiming a throne. And so hearing the women back David would have been jarring. The very next story tells us uh, that Saul was once again tormented by the same kind of tormenting spirit that first drew David into his service. And they called David in again. 
to play music for him. And this time, the Bible actually notes that when David came in, Saul had a spear in his hand. And so David's playing in an attempt to minister to his king through his art. And the king throws a spear at David and attempts to pin him to the wall. David dodges and escapes. But from this moment on, David's life, and I think his art, is forever changed. Um, This thrown spear introduces a whole new depth into the life that had it up to this point seemed super, super charmed, really. Even though he was raised poor, David seemed to have the ability to find beauty wherever he was. In his everyday existence, he wrote poetry about it. David uh, was called out by the prophet and treated like royalty in front of his brothers. He, uh, his musical talent had lifted him out of poverty and uh, into royal surroundings. He gambles everything on a rock and a leather strip up against a giant and manages to prevail. And if we go back to one of those early psalms we talked about, David had prayed, God, make the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart pleasing to you. Like as a young kid, he was crying out for all the right things. And at this point in his life, you could have the tendency to feel like uh, this is the perfect formula. David cried out for all the right things and his life was blessed for it. He sought after God and he asked God to make the meditations of his heart right. And it feels like his life is bearing out all of that goodness. Like his life is just charmed. He sought God and now the, the consequences were he's just moving up the ranks and just and his life just seems to be getting more and more blessed. And into this perfect picture flies Saul's spear. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about this period of David's life that's normally called his first exile. Uh, it's marked by him basically running uh, from a very powerful and well-connected maniac. Um, he's gone from living in what counts for a royal palace in that day to living in the wild, in small villages, moving from spot to spot, basically running for his life. And what makes it worse and what notes this batch of psalms is that David was innocent. He hadn't done anything wrong. All he had done was serve Saul well. This gained him a certain level of popularity, and this angered Saul. So David is innocent of everything he's having to go through. And during this season, David has to rectify the kind of lofty, lofty, hopeful, glorious um, beginnings of his life. And really this promise that has been put on his life, this kind of prophecy that's been given to him, he has to rectify that with reality, with what's going on in his everyday life. And I think this shows up in his art. So we're going to spend five weeks talking about how we live in the space between the way things are and the way things should be. We're going to talk about some pretty rough terrain. We're going to read some of David's cursing psalms. We're going to read him cry out for justice, declare himself righteous. We're going to listen as he cries out from the depths of despair for God to save him. We're also going to have to deal with the fact that David is unbiblical in his treatment of some of his enemies. He definitely doesn't love his enemies and bless those who curse him and do good for those who hate him and pray for those who despitefully use him and persecute him. That's what Jesus commanded us to do, and David does not do that. And all this is part of a long tradition from, of the people of God that we call lament. 
Lament is an honest expression of our deepest and most negative emotions, both to God and his people. A full one-third of the psalms are classified as psalms of lament, which means that about 50 of them, some say more, are negative psalms. They're, they're songs of pain and sorrow and fear and anger and loneliness and disappointment and loss. This is really shocking if you look at Christian music today because I actually hunted for a good lament song to play during communion tonight in our response song, and I had a hard time finding one. There's very little worship music that deals with the true depths of human pain. But 33% of the Bible's music does this very thing. Instead, what we tend to do is we numb. We eat, we smoke, we drink. In the name of getting healthy, we destroy our bodies with exercise. We chase more success at work. We watch Netflix. We scroll social media. We shop. We lose ourselves in gaming. We lose ourselves in our kids' lives. We surf pornography. The stats on all these are completely off the chart. And although I'm definitely not against using antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds, right now 20% of Americans over the age of 12, and it's super sad that the stat goes down to 12, are on some kind of antidepressant, up 70% from 1999. And that all of these things are happening in the most privileged country in the world and all these stats hold true in the most privileged class in that country tells me that we no longer know what to do with our pain or our sorrow or our disappointment, our fear, loneliness, and anger. And the Bible offers a better way, I think, and that is to actually lean into it. We lament. So when do we lament? And this is a tricky question that I believe is at the heart of a true biblical lament. I believe we can only lament when we feel powerless. Something about owning our helplessness fuels a godly lament. We lament for all sorts of reasons, but at the depth of every one of them is our lack of control. Sometimes we lament when we're guilty, when we know we've done something wrong. We know we deserve what we're getting, but it still feels like too much. It feels like we can't bear it. Probably the first lament in the Bible is this kind of a lament. If you go all the way back to Cain and Abel, Cain had killed his brother, and he was receiving his consequences, his punishment, and he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's Genesis 4.13. Other times we lament even though because we feel innocent. Like in Psalms 26, David says this, Declare me innocent, O Lord, for I have acted with integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart, for I am always aware of your unfailing love. I have lived according to your truth. I do not spend time with liars or go along with hypocrites. I hate the gatherings of those who do evil, and I refuse to join in with the wicked. I wash my hands to declare my innocence. I come to your altar, O Lord. Later in that psalm, he says, Redeem me and show me mercy. This one doesn't always sound like a lament, but most scholars think that this happened in this time of David's life where Saul killed a whole village worth of priests because they had helped David. And David had to deal with the fact that he knew that he didn't kill them, but he also knew that had he not shown up in their village, they'd still be alive. He knew that there was nothing he could have done differently. And so he writes about an innocence he's not feeling. And you can hear it. You can almost hear the pain of that. And a lot of us that live in a privileged country like America, 
I did a study a while ago because we were getting into quinoa, and I found out that the people in Nicaragua were starving because quinoa was their staple. And as soon as America it became a fad food up here, the farmers in Nicaragua stopped selling to their own people because they could make so much more money selling it to us. And so Nicaraguans were starving because it's such a healthy food and it's their staple. All because, and nobody up here was trying to hurt anybody. Like nobody up here was like, screw those Nicaraguans, I want my quinoa. It just became a fad food. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, when we live in a country, we have, to, we have to deal with the fact that we can't have a cell phone without somebody somewhere else working in a factory that's so terrible they're jumping out of the windows. Like, and, and that's the kind of thing David's dealing with here. Like, I know I didn't do anything wrong, but there are people being hurt because of me. And he writes this, knowing that, listen to the words. Declare me innocent, O Lord, for I have acted with integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives in my heart, for I'm always aware of your unfailing love, and I've lived according to your truth. I do not spend time with liars or go along with hypocrites. I hate the gatherings of those who do evil, and I refuse to join in with the wicked. I wash my hands to declare my innocence. I come to your altar, O Lord. Can you hear that? Like, I desperately want to be declared innocent because I don't feel innocent, but I also know that I am. There's a confusion there. But whether the pain we feel is our fault or not, the thing that really fuels lament is the fact that we feel helpless to do anything about our situation. And we have a hard time with that in America, especially in a democracy like ours, because we feel like we always have a voice. We always have power. There's always something we can do. We have rights. We can make a difference. So when everything goes wrong and broken in our lives and everything is awful, we go out to fix it. We get a new job. We change our situation. We work harder. We find a new partner. We do whatever we can to end the pain. We go out to make it better. If the issues are big enough, we pick it. We call our legislators. We run for office. And if they're even bigger than that, we declare war, we drop bombs, and we perpetuate the cycle of violence because we have to do something. The problem is in our core, we know that we are often helpless. We get that scary diagnosis from the doctor, that scary call from the highway patrol, that scary news story on the TV, and we realize all of a sudden how much is out of our control. Our guts know that we're powerless, but our mind wants to fight that reality And that tension between those two is where we would lament. Fifteen years ago, two of my best friends and their dad died in a car wreck, all three together. The call was unthinkable. Literally felt unreal, like you just knew something was going to happen. There's no way this could possibly be real. They died on their way home from work, and that night, sitting on the pavement of their driveway, uh, At their house, another really close friend who was one of my Bible college students sat down next to me and said, do you think if we went to the hospital and and prayed, it's too early in the sermon for this, do you think God would raise him from the dead? And the desperation in her voice was soaked with that hopelessness, with that there's got to be something we can do. And I answered, I don't think that would help. She asked why, and I said, for some reason we can't explain, God took the apostles from the early church at a time when it seems like 
the church desperately needed its leaders. And with everything going on, somehow God didn't bring them back. In His wisdom that we don't get, He chose to let the church go on without Him. I said, I think our job at this point is to let God know how much we hate this current plan, but that we still plan to follow Him anyway. I knew nothing about the long history of lament among the people of God at this point in my life, but I did know that I felt powerless, that the only thing I could do was be honest with it. Let me give an example of from Scripture of this level of honesty. Gideon was an Israelite, one of God's chosen people, living in the chosen land that had been promised to them. Only foreign armies kept coming and stealing everything from him. And so he's hiding in a hiding in a uh, mill threshing wheat where nobody can see him. And an angel shows up and says, Mighty man of God, God is with you. And here's what Gideon says. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors tell us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Be honest, who, who has ever prayed that prayer? Who's ever gone, yeah, all these miracles everybody talks about, where are they? Anybody ever said that? Yeah. If God is so powerful, then why is this happening to me? When do we lament? When the reality we know to be true in our hearts is simply not lining up with what we know to be true in our lives. I remember when Esther and I first got married, I lost my job the week of the wedding. It took me months to find another one. And I would go out and I would apply for jobs. I'd go to interviews and I'd come home afterwards and I would just pace the apartment praying. And back then, my prayers were very King James. There was a lot of these and vows, very formal. I was raised Catholic and so I was very formal in my prayers. And I felt all this emotion building up that my prayers didn't seem to be covering. And I paced for a while in silence and finally it burst out of me. If this is what you call providing, you need to get out of the God business. And immediately I like froze, assuming I was going to get struck by lightning. But lament happens when we know in our minds that God is good. But we also know that if this were a court case, you'd have a real hard time proving it. You lament when you know that God is for you. You know that. The Bible tells you that. But the evidence in your life right now says otherwise. And though you try to rectify the two, you simply cannot feel in your guts, like both can be true. And this is not doubt. Don't try to cover this with faith. Because if, if, if you didn't believe that God was good and God was for you, there wouldn't be a problem. If you honestly believe in your heart that God was evil and he delighted in the, in the pain of humans, then you would just look at the world and go, yeah, this fits. This is all right. The, the, the reason it hurts is because you believe he's good. And you're you're living the life you're living and you're looking at the world you're looking at and that's where the pain comes in. I think if you're not honest about the distance between the way things are and the way things should be, if you aren't screaming and crying and hollering occasionally about this distance, about the brokenness in life, I don't think we have integrity. We talked a few weeks ago about integrity meaning wholeness, that like something comes from the word integral, like whole all the way through. If we are screaming about the brokenness in life, 
then I think then I think we have to do one of three things. Either when we look at the promises of the Bible, we have to say those aren't true. Those aren't for us today. Or we have to basically pretend like this life adds up to that. We have to twist things and be uber positive and uber optimistic and go, no, this is exactly what God had promised. Or you have to go, although that's all for heaven, this life's supposed to be terrible. We're supposed to grit our teeth and when you get to heaven, you get all the good stuff. So when we read verses like this, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Anybody ever heard that and gone, that's just not true. I feel like I'm tempted all the time beyond my ability. For the Lord your God, He goes with you to fight against your enemies to give you the victory. And you're like, if that's the case, we're both getting our butts kicked. Come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you feel like if I try to rest, everything I'm responsible for falls apart. There just is no rest. So don't worry about anything, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Seek the kingdom of God. Live righteously, and all the rest will be given to you. And you're like, yeah, just don't worry about that stuff. Sure, just easy. Just don't worry about it. If anyone among you is sick, let them call for the elders of the church and pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will rise them up. And if they sin, they will be forgiven. And you feel like, I prayed with faith. Why are they still sick? When we read the Bible promises, I feel like we have four choices. You can say it simply isn't true. You can believe it is true and then twist reality to try and make it fit that. You can say it's only for heaven or you can lament the distance between. I believe this is what Jesus did. On the cross, he sings Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which leaves us with the question, had God forsaken Jesus? Not long before this, John records Jesus talking, just a couple of verses before this, records Jesus saying, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when you will all be scattered. He's talking to his disciples. Each one of you going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is ever with me. So then like another chapter, he's going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So is the Father with Jesus, like he says in chapter 16, or had he forsaken Jesus? And we can have a thousand theological debates about that question, but I guarantee you, hanging on the cross, Jesus wasn't thinking theology. He didn't scream out, this whole thing was a lie, it was all wrong. He did what Jews had been doing for centuries. He took his frustration with God straight to God. Which brings us to our biggest question of tonight. How do we lament? I read two books on lamenting this week and both gave like these really nice clean formulas on how to formulate a lament and then they read 20 different biblical laments that broke that formula. So I gave up on the formula idea. So I'm not going to give you a pattern, but I will go through one lament, Psalms 13, and see what we can draw out from it. Psalms 13 goes like this. For the choir director, a psalm of David. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? 
How long will my enemies have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. I think step number one to lamenting well is to recognize there's more than one kind of truth. There's the truth that our hearts know, and then there's the truth that our eyes and I think our guts know. Your heart may know that God will never forget you, that he will never hide his faith from you, but your guts know otherwise in that moment. These are the type when, times when life comes down on you so hard that your guts know that this could not happen unless God were absent. You can try to talk yourself out of that truth. You can try to take every thought captive. You can read blogs on how to not be overwhelmed by your emotions. But the truth of the matter is, what makes that moment hard is that you know God hasn't abandoned you. You know that, and yet life doesn't seem to fit that reality. So to lament, there's a certain honesty that has to take place. It's an honesty that says, I refuse to ignore or minimalize what's going on in my life right now. And this isn't just overplaying our circumstances. This is far more existential. David doesn't even talk about his exact circumstances in this psalm. He's concerned with how he feels right now. David feels in his guts that God is hiding from him. And he's honest with that reality. We cannot lament if we're not honest. Step number two to lamenting is to consider our audience. And this seems overly simplistic, but I don't think we do it well. I think we have some, like today, we have some unhealthy tendencies with what we do when our lives fall apart. A lot of us, when everything goes south, we we get back in church. We we clean up. We It's almost like rubbing a lucky charm. Like if I get back in church and I start singing the songs and everything, everything will get fixed. Everything will... God will start to bless me again and I'll get my life straightened out. Others of us, when our lives fall apart, we quit coming. Either we are angry at God or maybe we're afraid the church will see through our mask and they'll see our pain or I don't know what it is, but some of us quit coming when life gets hard. We run. Others of us are so used to being fake in church that we take our pain elsewhere. We come and we show the same thing and then we take our pain out there to someone else who lives. Do we go to the bar and talk to the bartender or something, I guess? I don't know. But we, we talk to our non-church people about all our pain. Some of us numb or distract ourselves. But David does something different. And, I, and typically when I talk about audience, I would, you would think I was talking about just going to God. But David doesn't just do that. Look at the beginning of that. Or the choir director. That means David took all the pain of this moment, whatever was going on in his life. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? He took all that pain and he distributed it for God's people. He recorded it and gave it out for the consumption of the people of God. He takes his pain to God and to God's people. David shared his pain with others. I assume... He thought others would be able to draw something from what he was going through if they were going through something else, that they would resonate with his pain. So step one is to be honest with all your truths. Step two is to take your lament to God and his people. But the third thing to consider when lamenting 
is to find your butt. I think this is maybe the most important aspect of a lament. Psalms 13 ends this way, the last two verses. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord, for he is good to me. I think if we start with this, if we start with this, we lack integrity. We don't have that wholeness. If we just try to always see the positive, we just try to always, you know, say, God is amazing. God is awesome. God's going to take care of me. God rescued me. If we start with trust and rejoicing and singing, we're not giving our guts their voice. We're not giving that deep part of us that knows something is wrong its voice. We aren't owning what's going on. We're not being whole. On the other hand, if we just stay in the first half of the psalm and we never find our butt, then we're just wallowing in our pain. We're just staying in it and perpetually living in that pain. How long, Lord, will you forget me? The process is what is vitally important in this. We have to have the space to let our guts have their say all the way to the end. This is harder than it should be. This hurts more than it should hurt. There's no way that God is here if this is happening to me. I cannot go on. This is simply more than I can handle. This is too much. I've heard all of these things. This has nothing to do with God. God has left me. Then once we've slogged through all of that truth that our guts know, our heart speaks up. But, but, He can turn all things to good for those who love Him. Once we've processed all the pain, processed all the hurt, processed all the reality that we're living in, our heart can speak up and go, but. This is more than I can handle. This is too much. But. I know He saves. I know He comes through. I know He's good. I think we can say whatever painful, angry, lonely, doubtful thing that is roiling around in our guts and still be well within what the Scripture allows if we can find our butt. And maybe all you can muster is, but I know your word says you're good. Sometimes that's all you can get out. I know your Bible says that you can turn everything for good. So I'm hanging on to that. Something about giving our, our hearts its voice and at the same time acknowledging the truth of Scripture is good for our souls. And if you have a hard time with this level of honesty, then there's only going to be parts of your Bible you can read. Because you won't be able to handle Job saying, why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Or maybe Jeremiah, when he says, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you, God, surely be to me like an unreliable stream and waters that fail? Or Habakkuk, when he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry. But you do not come and save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love, and, who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed. That's a huge statement for a Jew. And there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. If honest emotions make you uncomfortable, there are whole books of the Bible you won't be able to read. But the beautiful part is, Job, by the end of his book, says, I know 
that my Redeemer lives and will one day stand on the earth. Jeremiah comes all the way around to, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. Habakkuk, the second to the last verse of his whole book, says, yet, that's his but, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. These three dump out some of the most horrendous stuff you've ever heard, and they all come around to their butt. So how long do we lament? Until you find your butt. The butt is the goal. See, when, when we dive into a lament, we're not going to God like He's a counselor and we just want to process our pain. We're looking for deliverance. When we start into a lament, we have a goal in mind. God, save me. Like, that's all we want. We want the deliverance. We want the answer. We're not like, if I pray long enough, I'll process my grief and He'll be with me in my grief. That is not even in your brain when you start a lament. All you're thinking is, God, save me. You've got to answer. You've got to come through. Why are you doing this? What is going on here? We cry out for deliverance. And sometimes He does deliver us. The, the Exodus story, this gigantic story in the Jewish narrative started with a lament. What's God say to Moses in the very beginning? I have heard the cry of my people. I've heard the lament of my people. Sometimes he answers. But Job didn't get an answer. Jeremiah didn't get an answer. Habakkuk didn't get an answer. And Jesus, for that matter, didn't get an answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We cry and we cry and we complain and we rail and we beg and we bargain. And once we've given all that honesty to God, we find ourselves kind of organically saying, nevertheless, I will praise you. But I know you're good. It's not a formula we can follow. It's a relationship where you fight and you fight until you're tired of fighting and you want to make up. You speak your whole truth and then find your butt. So how do we respond to this? As a church, there's two sides to personal lament. And there's a whole other thing, corporate lament, which I think, uh, I hope we get to spend some time on. It's a huge thing. I think it's something we do terrible at. I think the reason we have so many denominations is because we don't know how to lament corporately. We don't know how to go, we have blown it. So we see a group of people with bad theology, and instead of saying, we have bad theology, God help us, we separate and go, they have bad theology. We don't. They do. And so we don't know how to how to lament together the things that are broken. We just divide and leave the brokenness over there so we can point fingers at it. But that's a whole different thing. Tonight we're talking about personal lament. There's two things to consider as we move forward. First, you need to lament to someone. I think lamenting is kind of like confession. I think you can confess to God and it's adequate. He will absolutely forgive you. But I think the human soul somehow does better when you confess to another human. And they tell you, by the power of Scripture, you are forgiven. Scripture says you are completely forgiven. There's something good for the soul to confess to another human being. I think lamenting says the same way, or works the same way. I think you can lament directly to God. I think there's something powerful in another human being bearing witness and saying, I see you, and I see your pain, and I'm with you. And you don't have to write a poem or a song, though there's nothing wrong with that if that's how you process You don't have to blast it all over social media. You don't have to come up here and say it in a microphone. But you do need someone to hear you and hear your lament. Which leads to the second consideration. We as a church, I think, are terrible at receiving laments. 
I don't think we know what to do with people's pain. Not like our church, the church. We're awesome at it. They suck. See what I did there? But this brings up a couple concerns. As bad as we are at hearing, uh, giving laments, we're really bad at hearing them. So on the shallow end of the pool, here's some things we don't do when we hear a lament. Find the bright side. Don't do that. When someone's coming in and they're sharing your pain, ah, but look on the bright side. That doesn't work. Changing the subject. Offering platitudes. All of us have... We all see the same memes. We all see the same super encouraging. But remember, when God closed the door, He opens a window. Like We've all seen that stuff. It doesn't work when you're lamenting. Here's a big one. Rebuking what is inaccurate in the lament. This is a tough one. When someone's lamenting, they'll say things that are just absolutely not true. Biblically not true. And we'll feel this urge to correct them to go, you know that's not true. You know that's not from the Bible. You know that? Yeah, it doesn't help. One upping. I have a real hard time with this one. Someone's like, man, I'm, I'm in so much pain. I'm struggling. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah? Man, when I, 10 years ago, I went through this. Like, and we want to we wanna one up their lament and show that we've been through worse or we know somebody who has. And rushing to the butt. You can't, you can't, rush someone to their butt. You can't sit there and every time they dump some pain, you go, ah, but God says you can turn everything for good. And that's just the shallow end. Those are fairly trite, but when someone is lamenting, they will almost beg you to do those things. That's the hard part. They'll say, like, there's no way this is God. You proved to me one way that this could be God. And everything in you is like, Okay, I've got ten. Which one do you want? But they'll, they'll almost ask you to. Like, you show me one way this could be, you know, that this could work out, you know, to be God. On the deeper end of the pool, is that if someone shares a lament with you, that's a sacred thing. It's not gossip. It's not for the prayer chain. It's not yours. If you get to see their pain, it's an honor. And you keep that to yourself. So in closing, C.S. Lewis tells this story about how he uh, used to not understand or agree with protests, like people who protested. He felt like all that emotion and all that, you know, drama didn't really help. He thought good logical dialogue was the way to get things done, that going out and getting all emotional and protesting was ineffective. He said then he was on a train ride in World War II, and there were three soldiers that he was overhearing and they were all talking about how they didn't believe any of what the German government was saying about the Nazis, any of the atrocities that were uh, being credited to the Nazis. They just assumed it was propaganda being perpetrated by the British government to pump up the troops. And C.S. Lewis said what offended him the most was that they didn't seem upset about this reality. They just took it as a matter of course. He said, if any citizen honestly believed that his government would lay such atrocities at the feet of another human being simply for the sake of emotionally manipulating their own citizens, that person should be calling for the overthrow of that government. Like, 
he for the first time saw that that the only thing worse than all the emotion that came from a protest is all the apathy that doesn't care to get that messy. But somebody who doesn't care to feel. Somebody who doesn't care to engage the pain. Somebody who, who doesn't want to dive in. Lamenting is a healthy and biblical spiritual discipline. It's not a sign of immaturity or lack of faith. If you go all the way back to Gideon, what I love about this story is when Gideon is in his bitter, angry mess, when he's in his kind of doubting phase, is when God decides to use him. Listen again to Gideon's tone. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where's all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now he's abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. If someone walked into our church and sounded like this, oh, if God's so powerful, why is my life such a mess? I pray, I do good. Everyone's talking about how God used to do all these great miracles. Where are they now? And then that person volunteered to like work in our youth group. We'd be like, you know, maybe get your life under control a little bit. And that might even be a wise decision. But what I love about Gideon is that's where Gideon is when God says, yeah, that I can use. That level of honesty. That I can, that I can do something with. He's not far from God. He's not immature. He's not like so wrapped up in his doubt that he's like an unbeliever. Gideon just dumps all of his pain and disappointment all over the place. And God says, yeah, you'll do just fine. So in the midst of all Gideon's yuck is when God starts using him. Someone in the midst of a lament is not far from God. They're not immature. They're not unbelieving. Lament is the honest cry of an honest heart in a broken world. And it it goes all the way back to the days of Cain and Abel. The people of God who are trying to faithfully live in a fallen world have lamented. Jesus accused the Father of abandoning him. I can't imagine anything that we might say that would offend him. 